Friday already? Can you believe this? We have made it, and according to John Wilson, we're heading toward at least a little nicer weather soon. It's coming. It's coming. So are a lot of things on the show today. We're going to be talking with Ontario Transportation Minister Jeff Urich. The announcement today about this area being part of the pilot for increased speed limits. 402. That's increasing the speed limit. QEW in a certain part. That's increasing the speed limit. If you've ever driven on the 4 or 417 east of Ottawa, that's increasing the speed limit. Right away, the question has to be, why 402? I don't know about you. I tend to go slower on the 402 at times. It's not the best highway once the bad weather comes. And again, you've got to drive the conditions, sure, but I'm still not sold on all of this stuff. So we'll talk with Ontario Transportation Minister Jeff Urich in about an hour from now. And I'm fascinated to know what kind of went in behind this. He's touched on that a little bit, but we'll try and explore that further. And what happens with statistics that they get from this? And one of the things that I'm sure he'll point to, because it's very factual, is that we have seen six provinces increase speed limits to 110 kilometers an hour or slightly above that. And right now, they haven't rolled them back. In B.C., they increased certain parts of certain divided highways to 120 kilometers an hour, and they did roll those back. And there are numbers to go along with those that we'll look into as well. So should be an interesting discussion coming up in about an hour from now. As well, we've got a perspective on U.S.-Canada relations. How do you think relations are right now between Canada and the U.S.? I would wager a guess that if you ask that question about any country, you could use a fill-in-the-blank. How do you think relations are between the United States and blank? I don't think they are as good as they have been at other times in history. Some could say, well, yeah, but not as bad as this date to this date. Okay, fine. But overall, how are things going between the U.S. and China right now? Huh? Not good. How are things going between the U.S. and Canada? We'd probably fall in the not good on that graph. So we will be talking with a man who knows an awful lot about U.S.-Canada relations because he lived them. And that is former U.S. Ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman. He actually has a very interesting book out that he's written with his wife. And they go through some of those key things that need to exist between countries. And especially when we look at the relationship between Canada and the United States, we rely on the United States. And, you know, we can say they rely on us, but we rely on the United States for a lot of different things. And you want that relationship to be wide open. You want that relationship to be buddy-buddy, as buddy-buddy as it can get, don't you? We are also going to talk with Jordan Edwards and Kladji Puka. They are Western students. Got to give them a nod. It is a Friday, and it is time to hand out some big pats on the back because these two have just received an Ontario Mental Health Association fellowship, and they've extended research into two things, one being refugees and mental health, and another being epilepsy and mental health. And that mental health in epilepsy deals with both those who suffer from epilepsy and their families. And we're also going to look at mental health for people who are either displaced 
and forced to become refugees or people who make that choice to do it themselves. There's a lot that goes into that. You'll hear from Peter Ng. Peter Ng used to play for the London Knights years and years ago. He used to play for the Windsor Spitfires. Was a part of one of the wildest runs in junior hockey with Windsor. His team, the Windsor Spitfires, won every playoff game they played. Now, they only played 12 that year because they got a bye in the first round. But they won every game. And then they went to the Memorial Cup and they kept on winning. What is this? Like the Patriots? Yeah, kind of. Remember when the Patriots went 16-0 and and were hoping to then go unbeaten through the playoffs and they made it to the fourth quarter against the Giants? And then Plaxico Burris catches a touchdown, 17-14. There's that very famous, I guess, on the sideline shot. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's Michael Strahan who played with the New York Giants and now has gone on. Is he still on? He's not still on Regis and Kelly, right? And whatever. It's it's had 75 incarnations since then. I remember it as Regis and Kelly. I don't even know where Regis is now. But he was on that show, and then he's been on other news shows and everything. He's standing on the sidelines, one of the most feared linebackers and linemen in the game. And he is on the sidelines saying, final score, 17-14. They were down at that point, 14-10. That ended up being the final score. So, yeah, it was kind of like that. Peter Ring and the Windsor Spitfires went all the way to the Memorial Cup final, and that's where they lost. And that's where it all ended. So we'll relive some eh, some memories like that. We won't dwell too much on losing the final game, but it's always great to catch up with a guy who went on to play for his hometown team, the Toronto Maple Leafs. So all of that is still ahead. Thank you for all of the information on the Canadian horse. If you missed the end of the show yesterday, we were talking about the giant beaver, and we got talking about the beaver as our national symbol, and immediately we started to get word that, whoa, 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 it's not just the beaver. Beaver is not the only national symbol that we have. In fact, we have the Canadian horse. And at first, I kind of sloughed that off saying, what do you mean Canadian horse? We don't have a Canadian horse. Yeah, 2002, Canadian horse was entered in as a national animal. And if you look at a picture of it, it's a horse. And you can't really describe it any other way than that. Although Kevin did send in a note today and uh he said you know this this whole canadian horse thing is very misleading it's uh, not a horse it looks more like a jackass and can usually be found in ottawa funny coincidence the americans also have one but with whiter hair quite a bit older and he can be found in washington that's fantastic stuff we'll talk some american politics we'll talk some ontario politics and we'll talk about a whole lot of other things in fact when we return i want to take you back to a conversation because tomorrow is the 10th anniversary of the trooper mark wilson ride which raises a lot of money they're up over a hundred thousand dollars for parkwood and we had a chance a couple of years ago to talk with carl wilson father of trooper mark wilson and just talk about mark And so we'll replay that, and then we will be in conversation with Cujo from the 1st Canadian Army Veterans Motorcycle Unit on what is going into the 10th Annual Trooper Mark Wilson Ride. That's next as London Live continues. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Coming up tomorrow, as the weather hopefully turns, starting at 8.30 in the morning, 
is registration for what will be the 10th annual Trooper Mark Wilson ride. And you'll remember Trooper Mark Wilson as a Londoner who was killed while with the Canadian Armed Forces in Afghanistan. And he has a remarkable story. And a couple of years ago, we were lucky enough to speak with Trooper Mark Wilson's father, Carl. And he he kind of told some things that maybe you don't know about the life of one of our Canadian heroes. And I want to take you back to that conversation, and then we'll get an opportunity to talk with Cujo, who is from the 1st Canadian Army Veterans Motorcycle Unit. And we'll talk about the ride and the money that has been raised so far and the success of this event. But when we spoke with Carl Wilson back on Remembrance Day years ago, he talked about 9-11 and really the role that that played in his son deciding to join the Canadian military at the age of 35. Well, when those towers went down, it was shortly after the days that he said, that's it, I'm joining and uh, we said, yeah, sure. But he did. We couldn't believe it. And then he started to work physically because he wasn't the youngest guy in the world at 36 years old. And uh, amazing the things that he started doing and prepared himself to join. He was known as, as one of the people who would kind of lead, whether it was fitness training or some of the, the practice maneuvers. Was he always like that growing up? Uh, yes, he was involved. Well, he played a bit of basketball in high school at CCH and that. Um, he was always an outdoors guy, forever, uh, from kayaking to climbing mountainous type of things. So that's the kind of things he liked. He loved the outdoors. As a parent, to hear that, that your son is, is going to join, is going to enlist, what goes through your mind? Um, never thought about it. We were just proud. My dad was a Cape Breton Highlander. In fact, today's my dad's birthday. But... Uh, uh, I think we were just proud. Never had any worries. Even in Afghanistan, I never had worries. I can't believe it that I didn't. But uh, things happen. We're talking with Carl Wilson, father of Trooper Mark Wilson. It's been 10 years since his death. How clear in your mind is that day? Um, it's a day I'll never forget. <laughs> never. My brother-in-law sitting over there behind you, uh, the two of us were going fishing in Padawawa. And uh, when that news report came on the radio that somebody had been killed in an Ayala, I just froze. And that's the first time I was ever concerned about our son. And I thought, oh, my God, it can't be Mark. And it was just minutes later that we got a call from my other son saying, Dad, it's Mark. He's not coming home. I'll never forget it. And I think the worst was meeting my wife after that. She was out shopping. Uh, many times I just break down when I think about it. Um, it gets me going. When you look at, at maybe now that pride that you felt, has it grown? Yes, it certainly has. Um, you know, a, a great artist here in London, Stephen Gable, did a, a painting of my son, and every time I go by that picture in the living room, I think, Mark, you don't know what you got us into these last 10 years. <laughs> and, and it's been a good thing. Uh, the people of London have been so supportive, and and I've been quite involved now with the military. Uh, as a result of that, I, uh, I work with a program out of Ottawa called HOPE, helping others through peer empathy. And um, it's been great. I work with families of fallen soldiers. 
and it keeps me going. It uh, really helps me in my own grief. And uh, it's it's a busy time, but, but but I love it. And I just realize how much the needs of our soldiers are. I, I just tell you one short story of a soldier, a father I spoke to the other day. And uh, his daughter died, unfortunately, with an illness in the military. But, you know, it was her birthday the other day. It was the second year she, she passed away. So I thought, well, I'm just going to send him a little email, uh, you know, just to say I'm thinking of you. Well, it's funny. He's, he's one peer that I work with that I thought he doesn't need my help anymore. But lo and behold, I get a message back from his wife saying, Carl, you don't know how much that meant to my husband. You know, he's always joking with you, but he's really in a lot of grief. And the fact that you remembered is a big thing for him. So it, that's the kind of thing that's going on throughout the country with the few of us that work uh, in this particular service. You know, It's gratifying for us. But there are a lot of soldiers out there with a lot of needs, a lot of families of soldiers with many needs, and they need the support. But, you know, I, the big word for us is remembering. Like, it's, it's helped our families so much, and, and it's helped us move along with our lives, just the remembering of the people of London, the remembering of Canadians. Well, thank you so much for helping us to do that. Thank you. That is from Remembrance Day a couple of years ago. That's Carl Wilson, the father of Trooper... Mark Wilson. And if you go back to October of 2006, Trooper Wilson was a gunner and was out on a patrol, a NATO patrol, and was going along a roadway inside an armored vehicle. And it struck uh, either a roadside bomb or a mine or something like that. And the explosion killed Mark Wilson. So not long after that, we had the 1st Canadian Army Veterans Motorcycle Unit. And what they decided to do was put together a ride. Because you heard Carl Wilson mention the number of soldiers and their families who are affected still on a day-to-day basis by whatever may have happened to them. And at Parkwood Hospital, you have so many people who are helped in so many ways because of the care that they receive here, whether it is struggling with PTSD, whether it is new physical challenges that many now have because of injuries that they incurred in the line of battle or serving this country. And we have that at Parkwood. And now every year you have this annual ride. It's the Trooper Mark Wilson ride, and it raises money for Parkwood Hospital and for what goes on there. And we're lucky enough to be joined right now on London Live by Cujo, who is a member of the 1st Canadian Army Veterans Motorcycle Unit. Cujo, you've been doing this for nine years now. This will be year number 10. Can you take us back to the very first one and what that was like? Uh, the very first one, it was just kind of a, it, it, it's a blur right now, to be honest with you, because, uh, in the beginning, we didn't really know what we were doing and what the expectations were. Uh, but uh, since then, we've become more, much more organized. And what have you seen the ride grow into? Describe what it's like for anyone who has either never been a part of it or has never even seen it. Well, the ride has grown so big that now we, are organized, we have to have individually do so specific stuff every time now. Uh, because when in the beginning it was just a, a couple of guys that went on the ride, and then uh, now it goes from twenty 
to hundreds, depending on the weather. <laughs> and speaking speaking of the weather, it's supposed to be excellent tomorrow. Well, that's that's absolutely key, I suppose, when you're riding motorcycles, right? Riding in the rain? Rain, snow, anything. <laughs> We've been through it all. <laughs> so you've seen snow in past rides? Yes, we have. <laughs> well, let's talk about where it goes from and, and when it starts. Uh, it starts at Parkwood Hospital here on Wellington, and it goes all around to the, all the legions, and Port Stanley comes back around, Lambeth Legion goes all the way along the, the shore, the, the, along the lake, and it comes right back into Commissioner, back into the hospital. So it's, it's, that sounds like a very nice scenic ride. It is a very scenic ride, and it's uh, you get a variation of temperature as you're riding. You get a little bit of coolness, a nice breeze, and the scenery of the water along the water edge. And then you come back into the city and see a little bit of the, the country, and uh, it, it's beautiful scenery. We're joined right now in London Live by Cujo, part of the 1st Canadian Army Veterans Motorcycle Unit. They're hosting the 10th annual Trooper Mark Wilson Ride. In putting this together initially, obviously in memory of Trooper Mark Wilson, but what was the motivation in behind turning this into a motorcycle ride? Well, the initial organizer is Derek McClitchie and Greg Young. They went to uh, the the Wilson's family and uh, spoke to them and asked them if they mind using Mark as a model soldier for uh, a ride. Um, it was initially just meant to show our respect to the family, and then it's just morphed more and more every year into a bigger event. And of course, there is a charitable component to this. Who benefits from this ride? The, the beneficiaries are the veterans at a Parkwood Hospital. So all the money that's raised, and so far we've raised over 150000 Uh All the money that's raised goes to the veterans' care at Parkwood Hospital. Well, it is a tremendous venture. It's amazing to see just how it has grown. Cujo, thank you so much, and do enjoy the ride tomorrow. Registration, 8.30 until 9 at Parkwood Hospital. Don't forget, there is a ride. And then if someone was not a a motorcycle rider but did want to come out and and maybe see what was happening afterward, is that possible? That is very much possible. Uh, the uh, festivities will go on until the actual draw of the bike, which will be done here. And also, if you have children, you can bring them because the veterans would love to see the kids around because the veterans will be on the property and out and about all day. That's fantastic. And that's at the Western Counties Wing at Parkwood Institute. And you mentioned the drawing of the bike. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, we've got a street 2019 street guy the street ride that we are raffling off, or not raffling, that we're drawing, and uh, the draw will be done. There's also other uh, items that will be part of the draw, uh, like a a weekend vacation up north, uh, a leather jacket, and a weekend rental of a bike uh, that you can rent for the weekend from Rockies. Cujo, thanks again, and uh, be safe on the ride. Enjoy tomorrow. And thank you very much. And don't forget, 
bring family and friends. There's still some tickets available. And how do we get those tickets? It's $20 a ticket, and you can buy them right outside in the parking lot where we have everything set up. Outstanding. Cujo, thank you. Thank you very much. Cujo from the 1st Canadian Army Veterans Motorcycle Unit on the 10th Annual Trooper Mark Wilson Ride. Got an email coming in from Derek. Derek says, can you ask Cujo why he is called Cujo? I, I, sorry, I'm just seeing this now. I didn't get a chance to do that. We'll try and get Cujo back on and maybe tell his story in the future. Right now, he wanted to tell the story of the 10th Annual Trooper Mark Wilson Ride taking place tomorrow, leaving from Parkwood Hospital, registration at 8.30. We've got news coming up next. Then we'll be in conversation with former U.S. Ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. If you grew up in this area, then you've always known about something. That something is the ability to take a trip across the border. Go to the United States. When you were a kid, what was that like? You'd go there and you'd go, I'd never seen this, this flavor of chips before. Look at these chocolate bars. Walking into a grocery store or a convenience store was mind-blowing the first time or two that you did it. And being so close... We've traveled to the United States. We vacation there. You may have friends there. It's a fantastic place. And we have what we hope is a nice relationship between Canada and the United States, right? The ability to not have to, let's say you're going to Russia, what do you have to do? Well, in order to apply for a passport, you have to fill out an awful lot of forms and actually mail your passport away, and they will eventually get back to you later. We don't have that. We can just present now our passport used to be our license. At some points, it probably wasn't even that. I don't remember. I was in the back seat eating flavors of chips I had never tried before. And now we just present our passport and off you go. We get TV from the United States. We get all kinds of things to follow in the political world from the United States. And that's where we want to go right now, because that relationship, the relationship between Canada and the U.S., how is that doing? We can sit here and we can bat it around for a while. And those who are big supporters of U.S. President Donald Trump will call in and say the relationship is great because we have to fall in line with what he wants. Those who are not fans of U.S. President Donald Trump will call in and say, you know, it's it's not, not great. Uh, we can't fall in line with the things that he's doing. And it's a very split side versus side. So let's not do that. It's Friday. Let's not do that. Let's not waste time doing that. Let's maybe get some insight into this from someone who really has a comparative, someone who can say, I know what the relationship between Canada and the United States is like, has been like, and who knows, perhaps what it could be like, because he's been there. Bruce Heyman served as American ambassador to Canada from April 2014, or April 2014, uh, to January 2017. 
and now has a new book out that makes for a very good read on Canada-U.S. relations. To talk about what he has written in a book and to talk about U.S.-Canada relations, period, please welcome to London Live, former Ambassador Bruce Heyman. Um, Great to be here. Great to have you here. Now, I guess let's just start with where the relationship between Canada and the U.S. sits in your mind. Uh, Can we ask you to grade it on a scale of one to five? Sure. Is one good or one bad? Let's make one bad and five good. Five good. Okay. So from the average American citizen to the average Canadian citizen, I'd say it's a four or five. From the businessman or woman to the businessman or woman, I'd say it's a four or five. From the President of the United States to the Prime Minister or from government to government, I'd say, you know, it's pretty bad. It's down, it's down closer to that one or two level, unfortunately. You know, it, 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 it's going in that direction, not because it's a Republican administration and not because it's a liberal government. It's, I know people want to get on sides, as you said. This uh, relationship between the U.S. and Canada uh, at the government level rises and should rise above who's ever sitting in Parliament or who's ever sitting in the White House. And my book with my wife, Vicki, a partner, and uh, is, a, is a story, is a memoir of our appreciation and love of Canada. It's a great story for Canadians to, through our eyes, See our journey through your country in which, you know, we found so fabulous and so rich in terms of wonderful people. You'll meet interesting people from coast to coast to coast through the book. But it's also a story for Americans and for Americans to appreciate uh, Canada in the beauty that we saw and the importance of the relationship, uh, which I think is existential. And so this is about Donald Trump being an isolationist. This is about Donald Trump in his mind, in the thinking about the art of the deal. It's more about, I win, you lose. And in the art of diplomacy, it's about how do we both win? How do we both find paths to working together and doing things together? And that's where the Canadian-U.S. relationship should be between our two countries. Uh, But unfortunately... Um, it's under threat, and that's why we wrote the book. And that's why I've been doing media appearances in the U.S. and Canada to stand up for our relationship. The book is called The Art of Diplomacy, Strengthening the Canada-U.S. Relationship in Times of Uncertainty. And Ambassador Hammond, it's very interesting to hear you say that this goes beyond the White House. It goes beyond Parliament Hill. Is that the way that it has worked in past times? Was that the way it worked when you were directly involved, that this was looked at as a relationship that was more than just I win, you lose? Yes, very much so. Now, look, it doesn't mean we don't have disagreements. And we go through the lens and looking at things differently. When I arrived, clearly Keystone was an issue. But never did we ever, ever, ever say the U.S.-Canada relationship was going to get thrown under the bus here. We could disagree without being disagreeable. And we could try to find paths to meeting each other's needs. And look, there's a long history of it. When the U.S. went to the Vietnam War or to the Iraq War or to various other things. 
You know, Canadians have your own view. You are a country of your own perspective and own view. And I, I appreciate that. We may not always agree. But what Donald Trump is doing is more or less, give me X, and if you don't give me, I'm going to crush you, and I'm going to hurt you. And I'm also going to tell you that U.S. is so great that you don't have the things that you have. This last week, telling you you didn't have the Northwest Passage and going overtly at the Arctic Council doing that, putting you in a box with China, which he, he, he has done directly, putting you in a box with Cuba, doing the things and the behaviors that we have at the border, which are causing, you know, untold number of schools that won't even do field trips. You were talking about the great trips you made across the border as a kid. Schools won't even do field trips from Toronto into America now with young kids because they're worried about some of these kids getting singled out by Customs Border and Protection because of, you know, targeting that the U.S. is doing against certain nationalities. That's about Donald Trump. That's not about Republican or Democrat. That is about this administration and the path he's taking our country. Is there anything that the Canadian government could, should be doing in order to protect what we have had? I think you need to continue to do what you're doing and broaden that communication out and take it to the American public. Um, I think the Canadian government has done a fabulous job talking to governors and mayors and even business people and even taking the time to meet senators and congressmen from both parties. And I will tell you, there's a, there's a strong appetite for the relationship between all of those constituencies. But the average American, and I just left a national security um, meeting here that was held in Washington, the average American doesn't think about international affairs. The average American in the voting that's taking place, they're thinking about their jobs, their health care, you know, their education, access to education. They're thinking about those things. And unfortunately, international relations is not something that the average American thinks about. We're talking with Bruce Heyman, a former U.S. ambassador to Canada, and he and his wife, Vicki, have written a book, The Art of Diplomacy, Strengthening the Canada-U.S. Relationship in Times of Uncertainty. Ambassador Heyman, can we get you to hang on, because I'd love to get into USMCA, which is something that is still a bit of a concern, and, and it was something that you discussed this week. Can we go to break for just two minutes and come back and talk about that? Two minutes. I just have very few minutes. I'm well, you know what? Then let's then let's continue. Our friends at NPR. <laughs> <laughs> well, then let's let's not take the break. And how about I just ask you about that outright right now? Because it was something that you did have something to say about this week. USMCA. Yeah. How do you feel about that right now? Given the things that you talk about in the book and the things that you've been talking about now with the relationship between Canada and the U.S. We need a trade agreement. We have one called NAFTA. It actually works pretty well, but needed to be updated. The Obama administration recognized that, was going to do it with TPP. The Trump administration has recognized it. They've done it with USMCA, but it's been completely mishandled by the United States Trade Representative domestically in the U.S. This is not a Canada issue. This is a domestic issue now in the U.S. Um, Nancy Pelosi has made it clear some of the changes that she needs to see in that agreement. She and Democrats need to see in that agreement to make it work. USTR, I think what they should do is very clearly go, yay, we're all on the same page. Those little fixes, we're going to work to make that happen. Here are some ideas. Let's get it done and let's get it passed. Um, if they don't do that, then this deal is not going to get done at all. So what I've said is the deal is dead in its current form. 
It needs to be amended and adjusted. If USCR amends and adjusts it in a way, by the way, the amendment adjustment they're looking for is enforcement and some of the provisions in this agreement. It is a not, it should be a non-issue for Canada. Not, this is not anything to do with Canada. A large part of it is to do with Mexico. Enforcement on labor and environmental issues. And so this should be an easy thing to get done, but the Trump administration is making it harder than it seems. And so I think we're in a, a really short period of time to where if USTR comes up with an idea on how to fix these things over the next week or two, I think this deal could get done. If they don't, I don't think it gets done until after the presidential election next year. Former U.S. Ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman, joining us, author of The Art of Diplomacy, Strengthening the Canada-U.S. Relationship in Times of Uncertainty. One last thing, Ambassador Heyman, and that is going forward. Are you concerned that a relationship between the U.S. and Canada, government-wise, could get worse? Or is it always already in a, a position where, yeah, it just is what it is? I always worry things could get worse than they are. Uh, I am hopeful that's not. And I'm hopeful now that as we enter into the new presidential term, hopefully, and maybe we'll have a change here, but at least the election's coming up, that the focus on the kinds of things that... Uh, make uh, America great, which is our relationship with our allies and our relationship with Canada comes to fore. That being said, uh, Donald Trump is completely unpredictable. He is irrational. And we know that there's been some history of his wanting to tear up NAFTA. If he does not get his USMCA deal done, I fear that what he will do is try to jam Congress and announce the withdrawal from NAFTA itself. And that would disrupt things pretty significantly between all three countries in North America uh, and uh, Canada in particular. And again, I want to make really clear, regardless of the party in Canada, this is about Donald Trump, and I don't believe anybody uh, is, is... In fact, nobody within the United States has been able to figure out how to stop him from doing irrational things. So... Um, for someone to pretend that this is a political issue in, in your own domestic front, I think it's a stretch. Ambassador Hammond, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Be well. You too. That is former U.S. Ambassador to Canada, Bruce Hammond. So he was the ambassador to Canada between 2014 and 2017, April 2014 to January 2017, almost a three-year period. And some of his concerns... Citizen to citizen? Yeah, no problem. Government to government? A little different story. Let's open the phones on this because, you know, like I said, we always have our two sides. We have the people who like what Donald Trump is doing. We have the people that don't like what Donald Trump is doing. Sometimes I look for for things to evolve. And Ambassador Heyman brought up a, a really good line that I want to get to in just a minute. And that line is... I win, you lose. How many times does that bring about success in life? I win, you lose. Back with more in a moment. 519-643-2222. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. In government, I don't believe I win, you lose works. Let me throw a sports analogy at you. This is not team against team. This is within a team. Because if you are going to be a successful government, 
You need partnerships. It's like saying to someone on your team, I'm going to win, you're going to lose. Now, in some ways you have to do that because you have to keep your role. So you have to be strong, you have to keep your role. But if you go, I win, you lose, everything falls apart. 519-643-2222. Bob, your thoughts on this? Yeah, Mike, uh, you know, with all due respect to your to your guest... Remember, I, he was an ambassador from the U.S. to Canada yeah, I, I know for three years. I know who he is. And I just had to chuckle a little bit when I, when I was listening to him talk. You know, like, he, he kind of just went totally against what you wanted the segment to be, because in the end, he did exactly what we thought wasn't going to happen. He just got on his horse, and he Trump, he bashed Trump. Now, but what he didn't mention is that he's a Democrat, and he was appointed by Barack Obama, and he also didn't mention the fact that him and his wife were the top fundraisers for Obama during the election, and he was on Obama's National Finance Committee. Uh, you know, which raised money for re-election campaign. Okay, well, all that stuff, but... So, so, no. so he's, got a, no, he's got a bias, a totally biased attitude. Do you he believe relations between Canada and the U.S. are in good shape right now? Here's the situation, Do Mike. you believe that relations between Canada and the United States are in good shape right now? They're in good shape? Yeah, I think they are. Are I they? Think, How? I, I think they are, and I'll tell you why. Here's the situation, and, like, I wish Canadians would just get this through their heads sooner or later. Because here's the reality of being Canadian. As much as a great country it is that we live in and, and we have the freedom and democracy, is we're the little dog. We're always going to be the little dog. The Americans are always going to lead us to where we go because we choose to let that happen. So when you have an official or a president in another country who's taking care of his people, that's a good thing. I wish we had that in our country, Mike, that somebody would step up and take care of us a little bit better and in, in, in innovative ideas and put uh, manufacturing and jobs by Canadian, made by Canadians, for Canadians, and all that stuff. You see, the Americans, they earned that. They've been doing it for a long, 100 years or so. You know, they're the top dog. They're uh, the uh, reserve currency of the world for a freaking reason. So when you've got to complain about jobs leaving Canada because – they're American companies. Well, that's our fault. That's our political uh, uh, people not doing their job. Don't blame them. Look at the states. It's on an uprise. The jobs out for Americans, highest employment rate in the history of America. Depends yeah. who you're hearing that from. No, no, Mike, it's, it's absolutely true. It depends true. who you're no, hearing no, that if, from. If you listen, okay, here. Here's what I'm really tired of. I'm sick and tired of people coming to me and saying, well, I listened to CNN last night. That's it? You're getting your news feed from CNN, one source, and you think that's gospel, or even a lot of the newspapers, the New York Times? Do you understand that every anti-Trumper that I've had discussions with for the last two and a half, three years, and guess who's wrong? The New York Times, CNN, the collusion thing. I knew it was probably not true because I listened to many sources of news, many, many sources of news. And that's the right way to do it. Listen that's to many right. sources. Bob, we got to move for news. Yeah. Thank you so much for the thoughts. We'll talk again soon, okay? All right, Mike. I always love it. <laughs> I think he was going to say, go Bruins, go. So, go Bruins, go. Um, we'll take a break and return with more in a moment. This is London Live and Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. 
All right, let's squeeze in one more call. We have Ontario Transportation Minister Jeff Urich due up after news. John, you've got 60 seconds. Lay it on us. Hey, you know what? I, uh, uh, with all due respect to your last uh, caller there, but I do have to uh, chuckle every time I hear a Canadian uh, harp on how great Trump is. I want to know what good Trump has ever done for Canada. Just give me one thing. He's done good for Canada. Um, everyone that uh, north of the border that thinks Trump is so great I would suggest maybe move down there and see what it's like living down there. I did live down there. My first wife was an American. I lived in Tennessee. Uh, most of the people that I know down there, uh, and still do know down there, are not Trump supporters. They may have been at the beginning there, uh, but now this is just like the big peacock. And <laughs> I shouldn't say that, Devin, <laughs> but, you know, the big, uh, the, the flowery uh, projection out there with no substance. And he's, you know, he, uh, yeah, I have to admit the, uh, the, uh, the economy seems to be chugging along down there. Uh, all right, but uh, for who? The uh, common people down there or the lower middle class and lower middle class are really struggling down there. And for all these jobs that he purports that are being brought down, uh, brought back to the states, that's not true at all. There's very little, very little jobs at all. You don't have to look far to find those stats to tell you the truth. That's right. That's why I said depends on the numbers you are looking at. Exactly. And these people that also say, well, where do they get their information from? CNN. Well, you know what? Where are those people getting their information from? Fox? That is a Hollywood blast, you know, thump my chest type newscast. I don't believe anything I hear out of there, uh, out of Fox. CNN's been around a lot longer. That was Ted Turner, I believe. That was, yeah, Ted Turner. Yeah, it was. CNN. And, uh, you know, it's been around a lot longer. That came out in the mid-'80s, CNN. It's, uh, I think, got a little more uh, years behind it and a little more respect from most people. And it's a non-biased view. Everyone says that CNN is so biased, uh, you know, Democrat over Republican. Uh, no, it's not. I think they give both sides of the story. And the other thing people don't realize up here is, uh, you know, we keep saying, oh, the Democrats are the people that don't like the Democrats. The Democrats are so more right-wing than our conservative party up here. Uh, uh, and I hope our country doesn't get to the point where it is in the states where it, now it isn't just a two-party system. It's us against them. Yeah, and they that's, almost hate each other. And that's, that's the not the way it's supposed thing. to be. No, it isn't. John, thanks so much for the call. Have a great day. Take care. Time for news. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFBL. We are going to talk raising speed limits this hour. We're going to talk London majors. We will meet a couple of guys from Western who have done some pretty amazing things and will probably continue to do some amazing things as we give a pat on the back on this Friday. And we'll also take you to a conversation with Peter Ng, former Toronto Maple Leafs goaltender, former OHLer. Just want to go back and finish up our conversation that kind of began at the end of last half hour. If you missed last half hour, we were talking with a former U.S. ambassador to Canada. Yes, under Barack Obama, um, Bruce Heyman, and he has written a new book with his wife. And he's got concerns over Canada-U.S. relations and got a couple of emails. One from Rose saying, I honestly believe that things with the U.S. are in terrible shape. Right now, the U.S. has been breaking our backs for their own purposes. I disagree with the Huawei lady being taken into custody. I think NAFTA will blow up. I think every time Trump gets a win, it only hurts us and the world. And then Al said something that I think is, is really interesting. He says, whether we like it or not, 
We're living in a world that does not trust the status quo politics or politicians anymore, and that that's where that comes from. We'll get into that in just a little bit. Earlier today, we had an announcement from Ontario Transportation Minister Jeff York, and it talked about something that we've been hearing about for a little bit, and then all of a sudden we got word that this area may have some portions of a pilot to see how this all works, and that is increasing the speed limit on some 400 series highways. And we learned earlier today that an increase will come to 110 kilometers an hour on the 402, and also on a part of the QAW, and then east of Ottawa on the 417. Please welcome to London Live, Ontario Transportation Minister Jeff Urich. Minister Urich, thanks so much for taking some time out for us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, let's kind of go to the genesis of this and why it even began to be put in place in the first place. Well, I mean, uh, we always are looking to maintain the safety of our roads, and uh, other jurisdictions over the last decade have increased their their speed limits. Uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and and many of the states. Uh, The flow of traffic on our our highways has uh, increased, and so has the speed that they're going at. And it's been over 40 years since we've done a review, so we thought, uh, let's do a review, let's do a pilot and see if it's time Ontario uh, ups the speed a little bit to uh, get in line with other jurisdictions. How does this improve traffic flow? Well, it gets people uh, moving more in the same speed. Uh, right now we have uh, 100 speed limit, but some people are driving 120, some are driving 130, and the odd person's even higher. And that differential uh, really can cause uh, issues with regards to how the, the flow of traffic, you get people being frustrated and end up passing you on the right, and et cetera. So upping the speed limit kind of lowers that, that, that differential gap that's on the speed. So most, more people are going more uh, within the same speed limit and keeps traffic flow going. Okay. Now, let's look at the 402 and the QEW. I want to talk enforcement in just a bit, but the 402 and the QEW are kind of around this area. Why select the 402? Because immediately uh, I, I saw eyebrows being raised saying, ooh, that, that's a highway that gets a little nasty at times during the year. So why would it be perfect for a pilot? Well, the uh, 402 and the, the other highways that we selected uh, uh, at this point don't require much in terms of upgrades. Um, the interchange spacing between them is three kilometers or higher, and the roads are constructed to handle that speed safely. So that is that is why they were selected. They're one of the uh, the, the most safest roads we have. I know the 402 does uh, get hammered in winter time, and uh, we will be making some some uh, modifications to help alleviate that. But most people um, during the winter time do uh, change their speeds to much lower than the posted rate uh, when the snow was really bad. Ontario Transportation Minister Jeff Urich joining us as we talk about a pilot that will see the 402 speed increase, the limit increased to 110 kilometers per hour, part of the QEW, and then east of Ottawa on the 417. If we look at at 110 being that number, when there were discussions about this initially, the number 120 seemed to be thrown around. Can you take us through the decision to go to 110 but not 120? Well, I mean, we've always uh, knew we were going to 110. I think the 120 just came out, uh, just uh, people speculating, and then uh, unfortunately it was being reported that it was going to be 120. That, that never was the case. Uh, we feel 110 is, 
is uh, the right increment to go forward uh, uh, safely uh, for these pilots and what our, our highways can handle. Uh, I, I, I don't believe there's uh, uh, a whole lot of support to ump up to 120 out of the blocks. Uh, I think 120 is a cautious approach, but also aligns with what the posted speeds are in other provinces and uh, uh, throughout the state. So it's just bringing us up to, uh, uh, to what's, what's happening in other jurisdictions. How closely will you be following statistics? Because I think BC up there is to 120. Again, that's not what's happening here, but they saw a major rise in fatalities, twice as many deaths. They did see an increase in crashes, and then they moved it back just a little bit. So how closely will you be following the numbers here? Oh, we'll be monitoring. I mean, we have, uh, we'll have... uh uh, baseline data of traffic flow and average speeds on these highways before we go forward, and we'll be doing comparators and, of course, monitoring uh, what's going on with the enforcement side of things and also accidents that do occur. But, I mean, um, you know, I think uh, the 110 is really just going to uh, just close in on that uh, differential that's on the current highway system, and uh, um, I mean, as I said, safety is our number one priority. If you did see numbers that suggested that we were seeing more crashes or perhaps more fatalities, what would you do then? Well, I mean, we'd obviously review uh, uh, what the causes are of those accidents, and if it is purely based on the on the speed and the pilot project, then we'll have to relook at continuing the, the pilot uh, further. Um, but I'm confident the speed limit of 110 is, is going to be good for uh, safety and the people of the province. Ontario Transportation Minister Jeff Urich joining us. Minister Urich, there's that old rule of thumb, and I'm not sure how many people make use of it, but you and I have probably both heard it. It's that you are able to drive a certain amount over the speed limit without the risk of being pulled over and given a ticket. And a lot of people will try and drive within that, and some, and this isn't coming from police officers, but some will target it and saying, yeah, yeah, I can drive 19 kilometers over. And the thought is, well, if you raise the speed limit, people are just going to say, well, now instead of driving 119, I'm going to drive 129 because I still can't get pulled over. How do we work enforcement with this increase? Well, you know, uh, the police, uh, we, you know, we'll give them the support to do the enforcement that they deem necessary. They they obviously uh, have the discretion of of, uh, of speed monitoring. Um, I don't agree that everyone's just going to up their speed at 10 kilometers. I think people drive at what they're comfortable driving at, and I, I imagine, you know, 85% of the folks will maintain that, that speed. Um, we were we took into uh, you know thought about the stunt driving rule, so we're going to change regulation that the stunt driving uh, law of 150 kilometers an hour will be maintained in these pilot projects. That won't increase. And during our consultation process, we'll take a look at uh, the fines and where they're leveled uh, uh, for the different uh, increases in speed, and, and ensure we come out. Uh, uh, with a system that uh, is going to enhance the safety of our roads. So instead of 50 over, it would become 150 kilometers an hour would still be that racing speed. That, that would be the race. That's not changing, yeah. Okay. Now, have any directives been given to police in terms of monitoring roads during the pilot? No, I mean, uh, we'll obviously be working with the police, uh, taking their feedback as part of the consultation process. But, I mean, you know, they, they, uh, they're they out there monitoring speeds and ticketing drivers, and uh, they'll maintain uh, and continue to do so. Uh, obviously, uh, they really go after the careless, reckless driver out there, the ones that's speeding and, and going in and out of lanes continually and, and causing uh, haphazard conditions on the roadway. And I'm sure they'll, they'll do the same due diligence, uh, whether the speed limit's 100 or 110. And I guess finally, in terms of the pilot, for anybody who has not been able to hear yet, how long does this run for? 
Well, we'll be starting it this September, and we're going to run it for two years uh, uh, to make sure that uh, we're making the right decision uh, before we decide whether or not to expand it or, or discontinue the pilot. And if it is going okay, do we look at the 401 and, and the 403 and everything else that seems to start with a 4? Yeah, we'll take a look at all the 400 series highways. I mean, there's, there's areas of uh, uh, 401 where we wouldn't want it to go any faster, especially right now in Carnage Alley as we're working to put those barriers in. Uh, safety and design of the highway is also going to play a factor in whether or not other highways go up to 110. Okay, and that, of course, the Carnage Alley you're talking about is, is going south to Windsor. Yeah, and we're fixing that, but it would take some time. Okay. Minister Yurick, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. That is Ontario Transportation Minister Jeff Yurick. So 402 as of September, part of the QEW, and then east of Ottawa on the 417 will be up to 110 kilometers an hour. And if you missed it, one of the reasons why those have been selected is because they do not need a lot of maintenance. So it is a test It is a pilot, and then after two years, they will look at the statistics and decide whether or not that's something they want to proceed with. And again, this goes up to 110, so it's not 120. The BC Highway that we talked about right away when this idea seemed to be floated was up to 120, and that's where they did see more crashes and twice as many deaths, and they immediately cranked the speed limit back and did not leave it at 120 kilometers an hour. So... That's the latest on that. Up next, we'll talk about some baseball, not softball. Baseball returns to Labatt Park tonight. No Ken Griffey Jr. and his grotesquely swollen jaw. This is the London Majors and the Hamilton Cardinals. Majors manager Roop Chanderdat joins us in moments. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. The London Majors start their baseball season tonight in the Intercounty Baseball League, looking for their first championship victory since 1975. Their chase last year ended at the hands of the Hamilton Cardinals, the team that they will face tonight at 7:30 at Labatt Park. And if you look at the Intercounty Baseball League, you would think that with all the movement that does take place, that it would be wide open. The last five championships have been won by the Barry Baycats. Before that, Brantford won six in a row, and seven of eight. They've been the kings of inter-county baseball. London looking to get back into that picture this year. Roop Chanderdat joining us right now, the manager and co-owner of the London Majors. Roop, you've done this a few times, opening day, opening night. Still get excited? Yeah, definitely. You know what? I get really excited. I mean, a kid comes out of me every time home opener of the season starts. What is it about the home opener. What is it about the start of a season that you enjoy so much? You know what? It's a fresh slate. It's a clean slate. Everyone's 0-0. Everyone has an opportunity to win a championship. And uh, you get to start, like I said, with a clean slate and see where the team goes, where we can grow and uh, improve and get ready to try to win a championship. How difficult is it to kind of gauge where you expect to be from year to year in the Intercounty Baseball League? You know what? It's very difficult uh, There's because there's so many factors, so many moving parts. You know, it's not like a, we'll call it a traditional pro team where, you know, you're drafting players and you're trying to retain them and, and build through that. So there's so many moving parts because there's so many factors that try to keep the players around. So, you know, what? It, it, it gets very difficult year to year, but it's something I really enjoy trying to put the building blocks together and try to win a championship. Roop Chanderdet of the London Majors joining us. One 
constant than you have had. He's entering his 10th season this year in the Intercounty Baseball League is Cleveland Brownlee. How rare is it for a guy to be playing a 10th season of Intercounty Baseball? You know what? Nowadays, that's very rare. I mean, you go back before, it was normal because guys would stick around. And, you know, the guys would stick around and finish their whole career with one team. Now, you know what, with work and family and so many other you know, difficulty or obstacles. It's, it's very rare. So what Cleveland is doing is fantastic. And uh, you know what? He had a great regular season last year, and, and he looks to be in great shape again this year. So we're expecting uh, him to put up big numbers again this year. And it would be one thing if Cleveland Brownlee was from London, but you found him in Atlanta, Georgia, and brought him to London. You know what? Definitely. That's what makes it so special. You know, Cleve's... Uh, if you ask Cleve, he loves London. London's his home now. He has a family here. And uh, you know what? He's, it's rare. It's, he's one of those guys that him and I mesh really well together, you know, uh, both on and off the field. And uh, you know what? I've been able to help him uh, set up shop in London, set up his life in London. And uh, it's one of those guys, like I said, we connect. And uh, you know what? He's a special special man. And if you meet him and talk to him for two minutes, you'll you'd appreciate that, and everyone kind of meets him, kind of falls in love with Cleve. We're talking with Roop Chanderdat, looking ahead to the home opener as the London Majors take on Hamilton. Let's kind of go over some new pieces to the team. Anybody coming in that you're interested to see how they work out early in the year? You know what? Uh, there's a few guys. One guy I'm really excited about is, is my Pena. He's a Quebec kid. And he was drafted by Seattle Mariners. What intrigues me about him is he's, he's a dual player. He's gonna he's gonna pitch and end hit. Uh, you know what? That's not an everyday occurrence in our league. And uh, so you know what? He's gonna be a guy we really heavily rely on in both departments. And so far, the early signs is he can do both. He you know he hit a home run, a couple doubles in our exhibition game, and uh, you know his pitching so far in the spring's been really good and consistent. So it's one of the guys I'm excited about. Uh, and then our import guys, you know, we got two of them here right now. Actually, three of them here right now. We got Phil Trappas, a shortstop from San Jose, California, and he's excited following, you know, the hockey also. And uh, so he's here, he's going to play shortstop. And Simon Mercedes is a former Boston Red Sox uh, prospect, you know, big, uh, you know, six foot six, six foot seven right handed pitcher. And uh, we're looking to see what he can do. And we've got a Venezuelan catcher, Luis Sale. Uh, you know, going to handle the duties behind the plate so we can move Mike Ambrose over to third base. So, you know, those guys are really excited about, and there's a lot of new faces this year. We've only got two two pitchers back from our 10-man staff from last year, and three out of our 10 position players are back as starters. So, you know, what a lot of changes this year. So it's really exciting to start the season with some, some new blood and new faces in the lineup. Well, Roop, we wish you the best of luck. Enjoy that clean, fresh start, and good luck in grabbing a championship. Thanks for having me, Mike. Roop Chanderdat, co-owner and manager of the London Majors. They take on the Hamilton Cardinals tonight at Labatt Park, 735. And if you look at the way the weather is going, don't worry. It does look a little gray outside, but apparently some peaks of sunshine on the way. We'll let John Wilson take us through the rest of the afternoon, but there's a chance that this could be a really, really nice night. You'll need a jacket. But 9 degrees, 8 degrees, that's not bad for a May evening. 
And Hamilton in town to take on the London Majors. We also have Blue Jays baseball for you tonight. The Jays open a weekend series against the Chicago White Sox. Clay Buckholz is on the mound for Toronto, and we'll have coverage of that one starting at 7 o'clock on 980 CFPL. Team Canada and Finland kicked off the World Hockey Championship earlier today, and Finland ended up winning the game 3-1. Finland only had two NHLers on their team, and they were Henry Yokiharyu and Yuko, or Yuko Lamico. That's That's it. This didn't seem to be a team that would have been tough. Canada actually takes on Great Britain on Sunday. I know it's Mother's Day, but Great Britain is at the World Hockey Championship in the main pool for the first time in 25 years. Canada and Great Britain on Sunday. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Okay, a couple things before we move on. One that I don't get. Uh, The Vegas Golden Knights just tweeted a picture of Pope Francis getting a Vegas Golden Knights jersey with Pope Francis on the back. I don't even know what to make of that. I have no no idea what that is, why it's there, why it happened. It doesn't seem to be fake. No idea where to go with that. So can I move on very quickly to a call that Andrew Graham received during news? And it was from someone who is a courier saying they like driving 100 kilometers an hour. And one of the main reasons they do it is because of how much they drive. It saves them on fuel. When we are paying more for gas, let's face it, if you are going to increase your speed limit and if you drive 100, you on the 402 or part of the QEW or if all of this goes through after two years, every 400 series highways with a couple little exceptions, we'll have to drive 110 to be driving the speed limit. There's no minimum maximum. That's what the speed is. And so this person said, no, this is not something they're interested in doing. That's an excellent point. Great part to the conversation. Thank you for that. Peter Ng played with the London Knights, played with the Windsor Spitfires, has now gone on to a very successful career after hockey, and he is one person who we speak with on Around the OHL this week. It's a podcast that you can hear every week during the OHL season. We'll have our Memorial Cup preview next week. But I wanted to take you back to this conversation because a lot of times where are they nows are a whole lot of fun. And seeing where Peter Ng went after his NHL career finished, he played with the Toronto Maple Leafs, is is pretty unique. And we'll get into that in just a minute. But we started talking with Peter about his experience in the OHL, which saw him go on an amazing run with the Winter Spitfires, unbeaten throughout the playoffs, right to the Memorial Cup final, where unfortunately in 1988, on a team that actually had Pete DeBoer, who coaches the San Jose Sharks, and Paul Maurice, who coaches the Winnipeg Jets, They lost that Memorial Cup final. But Peter takes us back to the entire experience in the OHL with the Knights and the Spitfires. Uh, It was uh, was a great experience. You know, it was your first taste of of what pro hockey um, would be like. Uh, We fortunately had a fantastic, well, I had a fantastic experience with both teams I played with in in Windsor and London. Um, But being drafted to to Windsor, uh, Jim Rutherford um, brought me in and said, you know, he's, he's developing a special team there, and it certainly turned out to be true, and it was great to be part of that team. 
Peter, we saw the Windsor Spitfire team that you played on go on an incredible run in 1987-88 and and just, you know, become a a pretty uh, amazing team and one of those legendary teams, those those winning streak teams where you just don't lose a lot. What do you remember about being around that atmosphere? We just had a team that was uh, just clicked all the way through. Uh, I don't remember there being any uh, clicks within the dressing room. Like, everybody got along. Uh, the team, uh, you know, even mid-season when we had different players away, like like Adam Graves away for uh, for World Juniors and such, like we just kept rolling through. Uh, we had depth, and we had this belief in in being able to win and in each other. Well, and you look at a lot of the teams who have had success in the OHL; they aren't always you know, line from top to bottom with future NHLers. There's usually a couple of future NHLers, and then there's a couple of guys who go on to have you know, successful pro careers as well. And then there's those other guys who are, you know, are good, solid junior hockey players, and they go into school or whatever have you, It's or the height of their playing days are in junior hockey. Back then, could you sort of see those guys who were going to go on to the NHL and some guys, you know, who are just solid junior hockey players? Yeah, I think you can see that in pretty much uh, any dressing room. Right. What mm-hmm. uh, what you never know though is how people uh, grow and develop, and junior hockey is still at the tail end of that. Like some some guys don't hit their growth spurts till later, um, some don't find their stride until later. But um, you know you you obviously see the stars, the ones that are picked early. Uh, the draft happens early. Um, you know it's usually your second year of of your OHL career, so you you already see who's been touted as the next you know, stars um, as such. But, um, you know, there's always the, the player that you just never know if, they're, if, if they could be that, uh, you know, a superstar somewhere else because they certainly have been in the, in the OHL. Well, I'm always curious to talk about former players. Uh, I mean, as you've gone on in, in, in your career, you would see some of your former teammates go on to be coaches and executives and stuff like that. Is that something you notice when you're playing against a, side, a guy? I mean, you're, you played uh, junior hockey with Pete DeBoer, who went on to a successful coaching career. Did you always see that in, in him when you're younger, or, or is at that point you're just so focused on playing hockey? No, there's definitely some people that stick out in terms of, you know, being a having a propensity maybe to, to getting into that. You know, I always kind of saw Darren Shannon being in that realm as well. Uh, he went on to coach, uh, I think, Junior C. But um, but definitely I saw it in Paul Maurice um, with, you know, the eye injury that he had playing his junior career and the NHL rules at the time being that, you know, you had to have, um, you know, a certain sight level in both eyes. So he was kind of kind of knew what was what he was up against, and I saw a bit of a transition in him um, in our final year, uh, his final year that is. Um, Pete also was you know good friends with uh, with Paul, and I, I I think you know in terms of drawing up a play or being around the bench when you think back and look back, you know who you know when you had that that timeout or whatever who kind of stepped up. Um, some of those minds definitely showed their their colors at that time. 
Yeah, it's a tournament style, and so many of the teams kind of remind themselves of that anymore, that, hey, this this is different. You you have your championship. Remember, you will always have that championship. Now this is a little extra icing on the cake. This is, if you win this tournament, you win the Memorial Cup, but that's exactly what it becomes, a tournament. When you, when you look at, at being able to put together a team that has the ability to just say, you know what, we can get this done, how has that helped you in life following hockey to be able to say, you know, if you have the right pieces, you can, you can succeed. Yeah. It's funny you say that. I, you know, I unfortunately had injury early. Um, I had to find a new career. So uh, I joined in the hospitality business and started in Las Vegas uh, with Mirage resorts. And, you know, I just remember kind of climbing, climbing up the ladder there and becoming executive and being in a boardroom and, you know, just just hearing the cliches, and, uh, you know, from from people and sports, and living it, being part of a team, knowing what it takes and how hard it is to win the highest level, uh, definitely sticks with you through your whole career. And you know, just even with my kids, you know, I said to them, you know, they don't have to uh, necessarily be great in sports or otherwise, but they have to play a team sport at some point in their life. And just because of that, you know, that piece, the camaraderie, the learning how to, you know, work with different people, um, and there's so many life lessons in sport in general, uh, but hockey in particular certainly set me up for a lot of, uh, a lot of things in my life. Peter, you were a Toronto kid who got to play for the Toronto Maple Leafs. There are so many people who have that dream. Can you tell us what it was like to have that dream come true? Yeah, it was. Uh, honestly surreal my I think the biggest hockey fan that I ever met of the Toronto Maple Leafs was my grandmother and I know that a lot of people probably say that somewhere but um, she truly was she you know we had a a special time she had had a stroke she came to live with us and um, uh, in my young teen years uh, around 12 to 14 uh, it was Saturday night we got a chance to watch the game together so the night I got to stay up late and and uh, and watch and and uh, you know she had her favorites on on the teams and, and it was just phenomenal to watch and fortunately she passed away um, um, before I even started in the OHL uh, but uh, but I, you know I just that stuck with me of having that opportunity to be able to be drafted by Toronto and come up through the organization and then play play for the team was was truly magical and i and i think i have a lane on my shoulder all the way through wow petering with us peter before we let you go let us know what you are up to now yeah you know um i always wanted to be involved back in the game at some point and uh, unfortunately through my uh through my career in in uh, the hospitality business i learned a lot of skills and felt that you know there's a there's a point there that I really wanted to do something back in the game. And I got together with uh, a former uh, New Jersey Devils ca- captain, uh, uh, Bray Salvador, when he was still playing. And we came up with a company called X Hockey Products. And uh, we started that. It's, it's been over 10 years now. And we basically uh, design and build training facilities. Uh, we make training aids for, for players. Uh, we pretty much sell anything and everything for hockey and and helping players get better at hockey. So it's been a labor of love. It's a lot of work. 
Um, but uh, it's been a fantastic ride along the way. Peter, great talking with you. Thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, thank you. That is Peter Ng, and that is an excerpt from a conversation that we had with Peter. There is more, and you can find that on this week's episode of Around the OHL, and you can find that Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you get your favorite shows all along the Curious Cast Network as well. We'll take a break. Up next, we're going to give a pat on the back to a couple of Western students, Jordan Edwards and Kladji Puka, because they received an OMHA fellowship to extend some research they've been doing. Both have been looking at mental health, but both have been doing it from different perspectives. Kladji has been doing it from the perspective of epilepsy, and sufferers of epilepsy in their families. And Jordan has been doing it when we look at at people who either become refugees or they, they have forced migration that they have to go through and what that does to their families. So we'll get a lowdown on what that research is doing and how it is playing out when London Live continues. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Want to give a pat on the back before we close out the show today to Klaji Puka and Jordan Edwards, who are a couple of Western students. They've received Ontario Mental Health Association fellowships to extend some research. And we've got to talk about what that research is doing. It is looking into mental health in two different areas. And Klaji and Jordan join us now. Guys, congratulations. Jordan, maybe we'll start with you. Does something like this Finding out about this, does that arrive in the mail? Does it arrive as an email? Do you get a text? Oh, we got an email, and uh, we were over the moon um, hearing that we had funding from CMHA, which is a a great organization I've uh, had a past with, and so we've been uh, excited um, to be representing them in our research. So let's determine chicken versus egg, cart and horse here. Which one comes first? Do you start the research and then show it to somebody and you hope for funding? Or do you apply for funding and then get set to do the research? How does that work? That's a great question. Um, it kind of goes both both directions, of course. Um, we need research to apply for funding, but sometimes we also need the funding to start the research in the first place. Um, in, in this case... Um, we had um, a map of our potential research projects, and we submitted those um, for the application and then um, have received the funding. So we're, gonna, we're kind of in the middle of working through some of the research, um, but this will help us certainly um, finish and get to those, uh, the final goals of the, the work that we're working on. Well, you have it from CMHA Ontario, and you yourself are going to be looking at migrant populations and some of the mental health issues that exist within migrant populations. What what kind of led you to research like that? I mean, it's a great that's, that's a great question. So i've uh, I've always been interested in um, sort of global health discussions, um, particularly in relation to to mental health and um, being able to work with uh, research um, on migrant populations in Canada was a great, a great bridge and a great opportunity to research um, various uh, cultural backgrounds in relation to mental health and sort of um, capture a lot of my, uh, a lot of my interests. And I think my interest has been uh, continued, continued to spark um, with sort of the ongoing global um, discussion of migration in the past number of years. Um, and the importance of um, supporting uh, new Canadians and migrant groups in Canada 
um, in specific, uh, specifically with mental health, um, it's sort of a great opportunity to be found um, for uh, for increasing research and our knowledge about these these relationships. We really, unless someone has done it themselves, have no idea what it would mean to say, okay, this this is my life, this is what I've been doing, and either make the choice to go and start a brand new life or, in a way, be forced to start a brand new life and find another home. What sorts of things tend to come up when it comes to mental health with migrant populations? Well, absolutely. I think you just spoke to a number of um, the nuances that are in relation to um, sort of the migratory experience. Um, and we look at this in a number of different ways with uh, the data that we have available. But um, this is uh, the, the idea of what um, previous, um, that previously what we found in the literature is that there's certainly a need to look at this in a more nuanced way. We're talking with Jordan Edwards and Klaji Puka, who are with Western University and have been the recipients of the first-ever research fellowships from CMHA Ontario. And as Jordan has been describing, he's looking at migrant populations. He's looking at mental health issues with migrant populations. Klaji, when we look at, at your research what exactly led you to studying epilepsy and, in a way, mental health along with epilepsy? Yeah, it's, um, so epilepsy is characterized by repeated seizures, so it's a neurological disorder. Um, and that seems to be what most people think about when they think about epilepsy, the physical symptoms of the seizures themselves. But what's really important to know is that epilepsy goes far beyond seizures. Uh, the majority of children with epilepsy, which is the group that I focus on, um, have various comorbidities that they also have to deal with above and beyond the seizures. And it's very important that those comorbidities are not neglected as the focus goes into uh, treating the seizures themselves. And beyond just the children, it's the parents also have um, various mental health issues uh, that are also very important, important to look at. And I'm working with a very large study database that's followed children over 10 years. And that study was the reason that I actually came to Western, because it was such a powerful study uh, that collected a lot of very important information. And I was very excited to start using that data and start looking at what happens to these children and families over time. Yeah, when you talk about large, we're talking about 15,000-plus that have actually been followed, and like you say, there, there's data to look at. Is epilepsy something that has, has touched you or a family member? Uh, no. Uh, so I don't have any personal connections to epilepsy. I had started uh, my epilepsy work when I was an undergrad, undergraduate student at the University of Toronto, and there I was interested in uh, psychology and various uh, memory problems and emotional problems, um, and I happened to work with a supervisor that was focused in epilepsy. And the more that I read about it and learned about epilepsy, I saw that it impacts so many dimensions of one's lives. Um, and so that's really what got me interested in it and really wanting to highlight that it goes far beyond seizures, that these children and families deal with so much more than just seizures. Klaji, Jordan, thank you so much. Congratulations, continued success, and thanks for uh, spending some time with us today on London Live. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Klaji Puka, Jordan Edwards. More to come in a moment on Global News Radio 980 CFPL.
That is it for London Live today. London Live brought to you by Courtesy Ford Lincoln at 684 Warncliffe Road South. Andrew Graham, thank you to him for his help. Jess Brady is in this chair next week from 1 to 3. News is next on Global News Radio 980 CFPL.